Um, who, uh, and then you've got the wardrobe of 30 garments. And I thought, boy, that is true, isn't it? It all kind of ties in with chapter 14. Where do we leave off this morning? We left off with what we thought would be one of the greatest judges of all time. Maybe the most godly man. Maybe the one that would turn the whole nation in genuine repentance back to the Lord. And then the kingdom of Israel would flourish and, the, and then the Messiah would come on the scene. But instead, although we get a tremendous birth announcement in chapter 13... We find ourselves greatly disappointed with Samson. We find that in chapter 14, there are two major issues in his life. One is is that he is completely impulsive. He He is driven by his senses. Whatever makes him feel good, he just does. With, without thought of ramifications, without thought of any consequence, without any reflection on the God of Israel or the Word of God, he simply lives out his passions physically. If it means feasting and partying with the Philistines, hey, no problem. God says, don't touch the grape, don't drink any type of um, uh, fruit of the vine. Not only that, don't touch dead carcasses. And third, don't get your hair cut. Those are the three things that that, uh, Samson had to do. What is he doing in Timnah in the vineyards? Remember what I said this morning? Don't loiter where you lust. If you lust after something, don't loiter there. Flee, run, get out of there. And so where do we find Samson? In Timnah, in a vineyard. And then he's supposed to liberate Israel from the Philistines He's supposed to really, we would think, fight the Philistines. He goes to his mom and dad, I want to marry a Philistine. Oh, man, don't be unequally yoked. Do not join yourself with an unbeliever in marriage. It is destructive. It'll, it'll, It'll destroy your spiritual walk. I mean, I guess there are some opportunities. Some sometimes maybe it does work. But, but God never counsels it. He always says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Do not. And we looked at that this morning. <sighs> Samson's a 25-year-old. I'm guessing he's about 25. He is emotionally unstable. He's got a seven-day wedding feast. He leaves his wife at the altar, goes home to be with mom and dad. And now we pick it up. We pick up the story. Because now Samson's lonely. He wants his wife back. And so let's pray. And we're going to look at this chapter 15 and come to some, I think, really tremendous conclusions in our own life. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the Word of God, we pray that you will open our hearts and minds to understand not only the life of Samson, but what is going on spiritually behind it. What is going on in the heart and the soul of the people and of Samson. They are, Israel is full of, fully into idolatry. They are loving created things more than they love you. And Father, you are trying to turn their hearts away from the Philistine gods and turn them back to you, but they are resisting all the way. Thank you, Father, for giving us this chapter in the Bible, as difficult as it is to understand and and really to look at. But thank you most of all for Jesus Christ, who is the perfect rescuer, the perfect Savior, who died on the cross for us and for our sins. He loves us that much, and he rose from the dead. And he offers us eternal life by faith alone. That is ultimately the message this is pointing us to. There is a greater judge, a greater one than Samson, who is going to come and did come. His name is Jesus. Thank you for the gospel and now for the book of Judges, chapter 15. Open our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, as I outline the chapter, I have this. My first point is Samson's visit 
to his wife. So let's take a look at chapter 15. And he is now going back into Timnah, the region of uh, his, uh, where he was getting married. Chapter 15 says this, After a while, in the time of wheat harvest. Now the wheat harvest is in May. And we left Samson now probably months ago with the whole 30 garments and the riddle at the wedding feast, months have gone by. He just left the wedding party, left his wife literally at the altar, and is gone and absent for months. Now it's about the month of May, and he's thinking, I want to go back and get my wife. Again, he is driven by senses. He's driven by, really, the pleasure of his flesh and not by any spiritual things. So after a while... Some months have passed. In the time of wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat. Okay, now we think, uh, kind of odd, but if you're going to meet your wife, who you haven't seen in months, when you left her at the altar, we would maybe bring a bouquet of roses. Uh, Bringing a young goat would be comparable to a nice bouquet of roses. All right, so she would have been very excited about a young goat, probably kill it and have a nice feast. But think of it like kind of a whole idea of he's really thinking he wants her back and he's going to woo her with a young goat. And he said, let me go into my wife, into her room. Okay, so obviously he wants the sensual pleasure that goes with the relationship. He doesn't really care about her soul and her mind. He cares about his own physical pleasures. But her father would not permit him to go in. All right, the dad, the father stopped it. Verse 2, her father said, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. Uh, Doesn't that make sense, how he treated his wife? Now, the father says, hey, I I thought you thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. All right, so maybe his best mate or best friend, some companion that he was with down there, is now married to his ex-wife. Then he says this, is not her younger sister better than she? Please take her instead. Oh, man, this father, he's messed up. We think Samson's bad. Now the father says, oh, I already married off my older daughter to your best friend. Um, Yeah, just have my younger daughter. I mean, he knows what kind of person Samson is. What kind of father is going to do that with his daughter? But he does. And you know what, Samson, why not? Why, Why did Samson like the Philistine woman in the first place? She was beautiful. She looked good. Hey, the younger sister looks just as good. It may be better. Why don't you have her? Don't you think Samson would go for that? He doesn't. Instead, listen, everybody, he has an anger problem. Because he is not getting what he wants, he gets very angry inside. And I guess if I could say this, out of the 20-some years of ministry that I've had, I would say at the root of almost every issue is a deep-seated anger at something or someone. God hasn't given me this. This person did this. And there's been anger that has been boiling deep inside. And it is that anger spreads to every single relationship It spreads to how you work. It spreads with your relationship with your parents, your spouse, your children, your grandchildren. Anger is so deadly. And now Samson's angry. And so as I write my outline, I've got this visit, which we just talked about, and now I have this. Revenge, revenge again, more revenge, and more revenge. Because Samson just wants to get even. He's going to fix the problem with anger. So here's what he does. Verse 3, And Samson said to them, This time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. He thinks, here is what he thinks, I am going to hurt the Philistines who have hurt me. By the way, it wasn't the Philistines that hurt him. It was one little family. He's taking one little small anger problem out on a whole nation, isn't he? Is that kind of irrational? I have seen this. I have seen people angry about some of the silliest things. 
But like the most crazy things. And I'm like, you are letting that bother you? And now you have made this little problem the issue of 20 people, 30 people, a whole church, a whole family. It's crazy what anger does. And here, Samson says, I have a right to be angry. I will be blameless by being angry at these Philistines. We are so good at justifying our actions. Then, so here's what Samson does. Look at the revenge. Then Samson went and caught 300 foxes, and he took torches, turned the foxes tail to tail, and put a torch between each pair of tails. Okay, I don't know. I have never caught a fox. I've tried to catch a chicken once, and that was almost incredible. Uh, very difficult. But can you imagine catching 300 foxes? Man, he's got to be fast. He's catching foxes. He ties their tails together. So I'm thinking he must have done this before as a child. I mean, he just sounds like the kind of kid that would do this to a fox or two of them and put a torch in between the two tied tails. So you've got 150 torches, which basically would be like a club of wood with the end lit on fire. All right? And it says he took the torches, turned the fox's tail tail, put the torch between each pair of tails. When he had set the torches on fire, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and burned up both the shocks and the standing grain, as well as the vineyards and olive groves. He destroyed the Philistine economy because of his rage. So, so Samson's sinful anger, God is using to bring a wedge between Israel, who is full-fledged into idolatry, and the Philistines with whom they're comfortable with. Isn't it amazing that that's what God has to do to shake a complacent people out of idolatry? What does God have to do to us? If we turn from Jesus Christ being central to our life, and then other good created things begin to take place, and that becomes our motivation and our attention and our focus, that if we lose this one thing, then I'm going to go into despair. Money is my central thing. And if I lose my money in a stock market crash, well, then I'm going to commit suicide. That, that happened. Um, sex is my God. And, and if I don't have it, then my whole life will fall apart and I cannot even function. Like, this is what's going on. And Israel has grown so complacent, God is going to use Samson's rage and, and let him set all of these fields and vineyards and olive groves on, on fire. Literally destroys the Philistine economy. By the way, it also offended the Philistine god Dagon because Dagon was the god of the harvest and the grain. So he really set, like, he set the whole Philistine nation on fire here, really, both spiritually and physically. So look at verse 6. Then the Philistines said, Hey, who has done this? And they answered, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. His ex-wife and father are burned in their house with fire. Do you see how deadly anger is? Start small, then it grows and it grows, and now we've got another family dead. You've got all the grain, the olive groves, the vineyards, burnt to a crisp. And now you've got a house smoldering with lives that are last. Dead and probably in hell. Going to hell. Got to deal with our anger. Biblically. At the root source of what is it that I want so bad and I'm not getting that is causing me to act like this? The Bible goes on in verse 7. Listen, more revenge. 
Samson said to them, Since you would do a thing like this, I will surely take revenge on you, and after that I will cease. Oh, don't you love it? All right, I'm going to flip out and and take revenge one more time, and that will put an end to all this. No, it's like pouring gas on a fire. It's just going to grow bigger and bigger. And sure enough, Samson, here's here's what he does. He he takes revenge. Verse 8, So he attacked them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. Then he went down and dwelt in the cleft of the rock of Etam. Wow, you guys, here he is. He's angry. Now his ex-wife and father-in-law are burned to crisp. The standing grain is torched. The Philistines are mad. Samson's mad. The Israel, everybody's mad. Samson goes down to these men that come, and he, with, by hip and slaughter, I think just meaning he cut them apart. He slaughtered them. With what? I don't know. An ox, the Bible doesn't tell us. But he went and he just destroyed and hacked away, leaving piles of bodies all over the place. This is God's judge. Are the Israelites getting mad at the Philistines? Not yet. They're getting mad at Samson. And, the, and the Philistine, the, both sides are getting mad at Samson. So now he's back in Judah. He's hiding out in a cleft of a rock. Verse 9. Now the Philistines went up, encamped in Judah, and deployed themselves against Lehi. Now Lehi means jawbone. So they went to this, that's where Samson's hanging out, in a, in a place called Jawbone. Who knows why? Maybe the, clef, maybe the rock looked like, a, or the, the mountain or the hill looked like a Jawbone. Nobody knows exactly where that is. But that's where Samson is, and that's where the Philistines come. They want revenge. So the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? So they answered, we have come up to arrest Samson, to do to him as he has done to us. See, isn't that revenge? You did this to me, so I'm going to do this to you. No forgiveness, no reconciliation. I'm just simply going to destroy you. Man, anger, revenge, tears away. It absorbs your whole being. Then you can't hardly do anything without making it a moment of revenge or or a fit of anger. So the Philistines want to do to Samson what they have done to what he has done to them. So look at verse 11. This just amazes me, everybody. Then three thousand men of Judah. All right, that's a huge group of people. 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this you have done to us? You know, they can't get 3,000 men and an army to go against the Philistines to help liberate, to, give them, to get them freedom, but they can get 3,000 men to go arrest their own judge, their own leader, who they don't know right now is the leader because he's not acting like it. I don't get it. So they've got 3,000 men saying, Samson, what have you done to us? We've got, we've got to fix this problem. Uh, he said to them, listen to Samson's response, as they did to me, so I have done to them. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Where is the grace of God? Right? Where is the grace of God? Again, let me tell you, sadly, I see Christians in the New Testament, believers in the New Testament, acting just like this. I know people that say, I won't sit in the same church with so-and-so. I won't talk to so-and-so. I won't look at them. I won't be kind to them. I won't be civil to them. We're brothers and sisters of the heavenly king. We're going to live in eternity forever in heaven. Together. Awkward? (laughs) Kind of. Go to heaven and you're like, "Uh, you didn't talk to me the last 30 years of our life on earth. How are you doing today? Like, what do you do when you get to heaven and you see somebody who wants revenge or, or can't reconcile or forgive. I, I don't know. I, I think it's all going to be straightened out, but we're certainly going to remember this. 
And so verse 12, look at what his own countrymen say. But they said to him, we have come down to arrest you, that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. They, are, they, are, they would turn over one of their own men to, to satisfy the Philistines, rather than abandon the Philistines and the false gods for the one true God. They are so mixed up. They are absolutely mixed up in their priorities of worship. So then Samson said to them in the next verse, Swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. So they spoke to him saying, No, but we will tie you securely and deliver you into their hand, but we will surely not kill you. Then they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. So Samson lets them arrest him. Now listen, everyone. Don't think that Samson always had supernatural power. I think a lot of people think Samson walked around going, boom, boom, picking up big rocks. We, we kind of picture Samson was 100% of the time this mammoth hulk. He could do anything. He could kill any crowd. I don't believe so. I think he only had supernatural strength when the Holy Spirit of God came upon him. The lion comes out of the... Remember the lion this morning? The lion comes out to attack, and he rips that lion apart with his own bare hands, no weapons. That was the Spirit of God. I think after that moment, he couldn't have hardly lifted up a big, heavy rock. All right? Because we'll see that in the text. So don't get the idea that, hey, Samson can do anything. He's like the... um, like Superman or something. No. Um, Samson only could operate within the spirit of God's realms, boundaries, for his power. And so he goes on. Verse 14. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. So I think the, the 3,000 men of Judah kind of pushed him down the road and said, all right, there are the Philistines. Go get them. We're running away. So Samson's all alone on the road, and the Philistines come. Look at, first, look at the next part. This amazes me, everybody. Are you with me? Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, rushed upon him. God is going to do something now in this situation. And the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds broke loose from his hands. Now notice what it doesn't say. He didn't do this. Boom! Like, like the Hulk. He, didn't, like, he wasn't all t- tied up. And then with his own strength... He supernaturally broke the bonds. It doesn't say that. It says the bonds melted like flax in a fire. I think, but like the Bible says, I think they just dripped right off of him. And now he was free. The bonds that held his hands just loosed and fell off. He didn't have to use any supernatural power to break it. To break it. it doesn't say that. It just says, so what does that tell me? God is the rescuer here. Not, Samson's not the hero by any means. God is the hero, right? You guys agree? God is the hero. He is the one that broke the bonds, not Samson. This is all of God and none of Samson. So now look what happens. Verse 15. He finds a fresh jawbone of a donkey. Look at the key adjective, fresh. If it's a fresh jawbone of a donkey, that means it's a carcass. A fresh carcass. What is he doing? Touching it. He has no regard for holiness. He has no regard for the command of God. But he picks up the fresh jawbone of a donkey, reaches out his hand and takes it, and he kills a thousand men with it. The Spirit of God now has given him the ability to kill one thousand men. Now, the other men certainly had weapons. But Samson doesn't pick up their weapons. He uses the jawbone of a donkey for the entire slaughter. And he just, one by one, they're probably jumping at him from behind. Got that one, got this one, got this one, got that one. I mean, how do you do a thousand men? 
I couldn't handle one-on-one combat. It's like a thousand to one. He does it and he wins. And now there's a big heap of dead bodies and he calls, the, he calls it Ramat Lehi, a mound of jawbones. It's kind of, he's just being, he's being funny. It's a mound of dead bodies, a thousand dead bodies heaped up in, a, in an area. Okay, you want to know what's tragic in verse 16? Then Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. See the big difference? When Deborah had the victory, it was all praise to God. God did it. When it comes to this thousand men that were slaughtered by, by Samson alone, he gives himself the praise. He is so eloquent. I have a riddle. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of this, you know, he's got the, he's, he's got the eloquence. And when it comes time, he says, I'm the greatest. I have slain a thousand men. Where is the glory to God? You don't find any. None. Nothing. It's just he's elevating himself. Pathetic. And so it was, verse 17, when he had finished speaking, that he threw... By the way, this little poem, quote, he was saying it to have it recognized forever. He, he was saying it that everybody would remember he killed a thousand people with the jawbone. He did, he did it all. So, I mean, he, he gave the poem as a way of giving credit to himself. Now, it was when he finished speaking, he threw the jawbone from his hand, and he called that place Ramat Lehi. Then he became very thirsty. Oh, see, don't you, listen, don't you love how God teaches us? You have this arrogant, proud moment of Samson, and then God says, I need to teach this boy a little lesson. This 25-year-old needs to learn from me. And so he makes Samson so thirsty. So thirsty, like Samson feels he's going to die. Now, what should, Sam, what should Samson be thinking? God is the source of military victory. God is the source of empowerment. God is the source of my very life. And I cannot live without my God. But that's not what, that's not what Samson thinks. Samson, Samson thinks, God is not good to me. He's, he should be better to me. This, again, Samson is not our hero. So he, he became very thirsty. So he cried out to the Lord, and he said, by the way, this is the first time, there's only two times Samson calls out to God. This is the first time, and it is not a humble prayer. It is a very selfish prayer. It is a prayer that blames God. Here's what he says. You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. Um, let's stop here. Samson, are you serious? Are you really a servant of the one true God? Has he not been serving himself and his flesh the entire life? He's not really God's servant. He's doing what he wants, when he wants. He's going to marry who he wants. Who cares what his parents say? Who cares what God says? But now when he wants something from God, what does he say? Oh, God, you gave this great deliverance through your servant. He's manipula- he wants to manipulate God. All right, and now that he says this, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? He's blaming God. God, why aren't you taking care of me? You're going to let me go? Wait a minute. Samson, if you're worried about being in the hands of the uncircumcised Philistines, what are you doing feasting, partying, and getting married to one of them? Seriously, Samson? So this prayer is not a real prayer of, a faith, of the faithful. It is a prayer of selfishness. He wants God's help because this is one situation he cannot fix. 
Samson's using God's strength, but he does not want any relationship with the one true God. But look at verse 19. Look at how gracious God is. So God split the hollow place that is in Lehi, and water came out, and he drank, and his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore he called its name En-Hakor. Hey, everybody. Do you know what En-Hakor means in the Hebrew? So the spring of water comes out of the rock. God splits the rock. Little earthquake. And out comes fresh water, and Samson's drinking it, and he names the spot En Hakor. Do you know what it means? Spring of the collar. Collar. C A L L E R. Like, who's the one who called on God? Samson. He doesn't, he doesn't call it spring of the provider. God's the provider. He's calling it spring of the collar. I'm the one who called. Let's name the spring after me. <laughs> really, Samson? Really? Seriously? Samson, you didn't get the water out of the rock. God did. God did a miracle here. What a selfish, selfish, angry, violent, sexually addicted man, which is in Lehi to this day. And then he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. That's his days in Timnah. 25 years old, and now he's 45. And we're not done with the story. Next week, we're going to get the rest of the story when he's a 45-year-old. So let me give you some truth and some application about this. Can I do that? Listen carefully, because here's what I want you to get out of the text. Samson has all of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. He's got the Spirit of God so he can rip apart a lion he can hip and thigh slaughter a group of people. He can, the Spirit of God enables him to slay 30 men for their garments. He kills 1,000 men with a jawbone of a donkey, all under the power of the Holy Spirit. He has got all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but none of the fruit of the Spirit. you agree? Which tells me, and I find this in the New Testament, listen everybody, this is so important. It is possible for you to have the gifting of the Holy Spirit. You could have the ability to speak, to be able to proclaim the gospel, to encourage others to speak and preach and teach God's word, and yet do it without the fruit of the Spirit. You see, the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 are, is the empowerment of God for you to do something, to either speak or to serve. That is the spiritual gifting that God gives us. The spiritual fruit is found in Galatians 5, and it's not doing, it's being. It's, it's our character, love. And out of love flows joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and kindness and meekness, self-control. All of that flowing out of love. And it is possible for you and I to operate our spiritual gifts without the character of the Spirit of God behind it. And it is tragic because it just hurts and ruins churches. It ruins families. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 13. Listen, let me just go there and I'm going to just read the first few verses. Here's what Paul says. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, speaking about the gifting and the fruit of the Spirit. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. All right, so Paul said, if I was the ability, if I had the speaking ability to have such eloquence and power with my speech... But I do it without love, without love for others. I am like clanging cymbals. I'm just like noise. That's all it means. It's a big fat zero. It's a nothing. 
Absolutely nothing. He goes on and he says this, Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So I have the, I have the gift of prophecy. God gives me the ability to foretell something in that, in that day. Or I have understanding of all the mysteries of God, and I understand all of revelation. I understand the divine revelation. And I have great, great faith. So I could say to a mountain, be, be thrown into the sea, and it happens. But if I have all of the gifts of the Spirit, but I do it without love, it shows up in God's economy as a, as a big zero, as a nothing. He says, look at the end, listen to this text. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. That's a huge sacrifice. I sell everything at 5906 Helm Road. I sell our house, our furniture, our clothing, our vehicles. I sell everything and give it all to the, to the poor. And, and then I give my body as a sacrifice to be burned. So I now have no body. It's all ashes. But I do all of that. And that's a great thing, by the way. It's a great thing to do, I guess. But if I do all of that without the love of, the, the love of God working and operating in my heart that produces joy and peace and gentleness and kindness and self-control... The Bible says that is nothing. God looks at that and says, I don't even see it. And what do we do on earth? We praise the people. We think they're the greatest because they're using all their spiritual gifts. Can I tell you something? Oftentimes, those who are maybe the most gifted are inside in a place of absolute destruction. Their soul is wasting away with anger and sin and addictions. And you could never tell it from the outside. Samson. You, you, man, Samson's doing great things with the, with the Spirit of God. But he has absolutely zero holiness and character. He, has, he, he comes up empty on holiness and character, although he's doing some phenomenal things. And by the way, when I say Samson, what do we think? The climactic pushing of the walls and the temple falls down and kills a lot of people? That's going to be next Sunday morning. That's what we know of Samson. And a lot of us think, hey, Samson's our hero. He's the strongest man in the Bible. In God's eyes, he used Samson, no doubt. But in God's eyes, it was a big zero. He's listed in the Hall of Faith. I can't deny that. But the Word of God gives us an accurate representation of of what was really the character of Samson. Oh, boy. Um... Here it is. All right, so um, that's my first application. Listen to this. Here are a couple of other applications. Don't take revenge. If you're angry, determine the source of your anger and be rid of it, biblically. Deal with it before... You need to, you need to go to the Lord Jesus. You need, to be, you need to be able to say to him, Father, I am, I am angry. I, have, I wanted this, or this happened to me when I was younger, or I didn't get this, or, or I was treated like this, or I didn't have the perfect home life, or I don't care what, what is maybe causing you to be angry, but you need to release that, and you need to forgive those who have hurt and offended you, as hard as that is. 
Because if you don't forgive them, you're not keeping them in prison, you're keeping yourself in prison. And then every day you're thinking about what they did and how you were hurt. And then that builds up in your heart, and then, and then it affects every relationship, most of all with God himself. The Lord said in Romans 12, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That's not our place. We don't know the hearts of people. We don't know anything. But if you're holding on to anything inside that is eating away at you, it will consume you. Don't take revenge. Which means you need to forgive. Forgive means you do not hold that against the individual. You release them from the payment. Like if somebody hurts me, I think that they, they deserve to do... They, they should de- there should be some kind of payment. Not financial, but I want them to suffer a little bit as a payment for what they did to me. And then when I think the suffering's enough, well, then I could let them off the hook. That is not forgiveness. Forgiveness, forgiveness is saying, you have hurt me and you have hurt me bad. And really, to pay me back for this, you know, all of these, but I'm going to release you from any payment to me. You owe me nothing, and I only owe you love. And, and, and then we can release that, that hurt and the anger, and we can be able to move on. Samson could not move on, and that revenge actually drove him to death. Another application. When it comes to praising, give your glory to God and not to yourself. We so badly want to be praised. We live for significance, don't we? We we are taught that from when when we're in kindergarten. If you get a good job and a star on your paper, you did great. If you didn't get the star, like I didn't get a star in elementary. You know, I looked at my elementary report cards. Man, talk about average or below average. And I'm like, I'm glad I didn't see those, or I would have like really, you know, been frustrated with that. But but all you know, I didn't get any excellence or superiors in school or anything. I mean. I'm just, I'm average and below average. It's like, well, then I, but you know why I did it when I got older? Why I, because I wanted the affirmation that I was somebody. And so then we feel like, hey, I'm the one that did it. You know, like for instance, here's what happens. Sometimes I even do this. I think that my spiritual state is based on how many people like me or how many people respond to teaching or messages or the gospel or whatever. And then I think, oh, I must be doing great with God. He must be pleased with me because other people are. No. He might, God might not be pleased. I might have that Samson complex where I'm doing all the gifts of the Spirit, but my inner part is rotting away. So make sure you're authentic, inward and outward. Um, and lastly, our behavior does reflect Christ to the world. It does. Your behavior, your testimony matters. You're not saved by your testimony, but your testimony tells the unbelieving world something about Jesus. It tells, it tells them what Jesus is like in, in, in our eyes. So if I'm really nasty as a public school teacher, or if I'm saying, if I'm saying I don't know, swear words or, or lies or, or whatever it might be to my students... They would look at me as a pastor and say, oh, that's what his God must be like. And I'm no longer giving glory to God. I'm actually making him look pretty bad in the eyes of the unsaved. My goal in life is to glorify God, to make him look like he should before an unsaved world. So it's not legalism, it's not works. It's the glorify God in your body. Whether, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Make him look as great as he really is through your life and your attitude. 
which means it's going to affect how we work. It's going to affect our marriage relationships. It's going to affect how we interact with people, what we say and how we say it, and forgiveness and all of that. It, it impacts all of it. Do you agree? I think the Christian church, I'm talking the true believing church in America, could actually transform our culture if every genuine believer actually lived out holiness and their testimony so that Christ is represented as glorious as he really is. I really believe that. You know how, okay, I'm sorry. Can I just share one more thing? In Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah said this. He, he was just blasting the false prophets in Jeremiah 23. And I can't even, it's on, the left hand, it's on the left-hand column of this page about halfway down. That's all I can tell you. But it's in Jeremiah 23, and here's, here's what Jeremiah said. Jeremiah said, if all of the true prophets, if all of the prophets in Israel declared the truth, then Israel would be a whole different nation. I mean, that's my own paraphrase. But because the false prophets were being listened to, the whole nation was in decay. Our country is in decay. We are aborting babies. We are allowing all sorts of wickedness to become normal. And it is because the church has lost her distinctiveness and holiness that this is happening. And if every believer lived out the principles of God's word with kindness and and gentleness and and long-suffering, then people would see our God and and our culture would change. I'm thinking about our Bible Isn't our Bible study at school great, Hunter? I'm, I'm just loving it. We've got people in the auditorium, and I honestly think lives are changing. I do. I think, I think the culture of, of that group, and, and that's spreading to the whole school. I would love to see our whole school transformed. And oftentimes, at the end of our Bible study during real time, the students will even say, well, how come, how come everybody doesn't come to this? How co- why doesn't every school do this? Wouldn't it be awesome if every public school had an hour or even a half an hour every single day for the gospel and the word of God to be preached and taught and received? Can you imagine what would happen to our country? Huh. Wow! It would be awesome. But um, we're in a state of decay and idolatry because I think the church has drifted. Sad. So we, we have much to learn. Oh, I have so much more. Um, his prayer life. Oh, can I just share this last thing? Um, I think the greatest barometer of your spiritual life is your prayer life. I really do. If you're not intimate with the Lord on a regular basis, talking to Him, not just asking, and not just, Lord, thank you for this booty, man, but just really intimate with the Lord throughout the day, I think you have a healthy walk. If you go long periods without talking to the Lord, I would say... There's something between you and your Savior. Get it, do something about that. But I think just look, check your prayer life this week and just see. You know Samson's prayer life? Oh, come on. His second prayer? Yeah, it's really bad. Lord, I, wanna, I want revenge. Kill these people as I, as I have power to break down these pillars. Oh, come on, Samson. Can't you have a better last prayer? I mean, but read it. It's uh, Judges 16, 24, I think. Just read that last prayer. And, but so check your prayer life out, right? Now, let's pray. And I, I hope you grasp the gospel if you just understand the great love of Christ and that. And then some thoughts about Samson. Next Sunday morning, we'll wrap it up with Judges 16 when Samson ends his life as a 45-year-old in Gaza. Father in heaven, thank you for our time in the word of God. It is precious. It is truth. These, these events we read about tonight with the foxes and the torches and the hip and thigh slaughter and the thousand men that died with the jawbone of a donkey, 
These events actually happened by a, by a man that you used. And yet, although this man was greatly gifted by the Spirit of God, yet he did not have the inner character that is so desperately needed today. So thank you that we can learn from this man that by grace you used. And we appreciate Samson. We thank you that you used him because it shows that you can use anybody. Um, you could use rocks. You could raise rocks up to do this, jo- this job of mine, what I'm doing here. You don't need me. You could, you could use a palm tree to do what I'm doing, but you choose to use me. You choose to use us. Thank you for our church. Thank you for the idea of spiritual growth from the inner man. And I pray that we would love you more and more with greater and greater um, devotion every day. And thank you for the opportunity to declare the gospel to the unsaved. I pray for the Men for Christ rally on Friday. Give us safety driving down to Chicago. Help us to really learn the scriptures and listen to the teaching and the preaching, and then come back revived, better husbands, better workers, better people in the church. And not for our glory, but for your glory, that you're changing our lives. You're doing a work. So thank you for this church family and for the evening tonight. Bless the pizza time at our house and me. We just rejoice and be glad. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, hey, we do, we, our house is